One thing we need to be careful about, though, is making sure that boys are reading girls' books because right. there's been a big message about girls being boyish and boys are still shying away from things with butterflies. You know, girls yeah, are expected sure, to, sure. like, dinosaur it up, yeah. but boys aren't expected right. to butterfly it up. I am publishing a book through Unbound. Unbound are a publishing company, which means that they don't publish things that they don't think are good and that they edit and they support their authors. The thing that makes them different from other publishing companies is they're half publishing company and half crowdfunding company, which means that the way that the books get published is that people who want to read the books pre-order those books. They can pre-order them as a digital copy or as a hardback, or they can pledge more money to get different kinds of things along with the book that they're pre-ordering. Unbound approached me in December to see if I wanted to adapt my show What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity into a book and I said yes please I definitely would like to do that and so that is what I'm doing. If you go to the Unbound website and there'll be a link to this in the show notes you can find Mansplaining Masculinity over there and pre-order a copy of that book. The way that this book is going to get made is by people like you pre-ordering it and pledging to it and people like you telling other people about it, sharing it on social media, recommending it to other people, those kinds of things. You can find out what the book is fully about by reading about it on the page. There's a video of me in a purple dress and fedora with my childhood toy dolphin telling you about what the book is about. Video is your preferred way to absorb information. But basically, Mansplaining Masculinity is about looking into myself and looking out at culture and thinking about how masculinity is constructed and created and how systematic elements contribute both to the ways that men are hurt by society but also the ways that men hurt other people in society. It is not a book that says that men are the problem. But it is a book that will say that we can be part of the solution. And if you want to get an idea of what it's like before you pledge to it, you can listen to a podcast of the show that it's adapted from on the website mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. And also there was an episode of BBC Radio 4's Forethought called Liberating Men, which was a reflection on an extension of the show. So listen to those shows, see if you like what you hear, and if you do, then please do support and pledge to make mansplaining masculinity happen. When you walk into this room, are you going to play along with everyone? And it's that nod and that wink, and, you know, pun intended, it's tongue-in-cheek, whatever that toe, whatever level of that tongue. Hello. I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Virginie. Uh, Hello, Virg. Hi. The first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? I know you. You have to think carefully, I think, when we plot this. 
so I know you through Matt. Yes. And then Matt, I know through Louise. Right. Who I used to work with doing a French theatre show, um, touring around Europe. And that goes all the way back to a what I consider a kind of, in my mind, this pivotal barbecue, I call it, um, <laughs> where I live in a big house show in Brixton and have done for 11 years. And so obviously people are always inviting. There's always a kind of cross-pollination of people, people inviting people to parties and you meet their friends and their friends. And quite a number of moons ago now, one of my housemates was a girl called Kate. I'd lived with her sister in the south of France. That's how kind of tenuous the connection was. She was looking for a house share. She moved into my flat and had this barbecue one summer and invited some friends who, you know, it was just a gathering and I was much younger as well. So you take even less consciousness of kind of who's floating around. But my best friend was talking to these people in the garden and ran into the kitchen and was like, you need to speak to this guy he works for a theatre company and I've told him that you want to work for a theatre company doing French and they do language shows. Anyway, all these kind of buzzwords of things that had been in my mind and what I'd been talking about for some time. Essentially that I wanted to do French language workshops for kids who were learning a language to not make language learning so hideously text and uh, theory based but to really give a practical and fun like get them out of their heads and just get them talking kind of idea right which is why i'd been in the south of france with the other one sister if you're following (laughs) um so these this guy comes in from the barbecue and my friend had nicknamed him Ray Mears because he looked slightly like Ray Mears and he'd been barbecuing like a piece of monkfish over an open flame. <laughs> and he was like, Oh well I I've been I've worked for a number of years for a theatre company. I can put you in touch with the directors. I know they're looking to expand what they do and produce a French show. So I met these guys round Exmouth Market in the park, just having a chat we're all on the same wavelength essentially the only problem was they always do a two-man show and at the moment I was the only one presenting saying I would like to do a French show so they were like so we need another actor um so we'll put something on the website and try and find a second person then we'll talk about developing a new show the stars were aligning at this point and out of the blue this girl called Louise Adams calls Big Wheel speculatively asking if they you know, wanting to know more about this French show that they'd kind of mentioned on the website. Right. So they bring her in, and unlike many of the other people in that theatre company, neither of us essentially auditioned. We just started workshopping a show, and fast forward, this show still tours, and Louise and I, for a good, like, 18 months, toured with one another around Europe. Um, We also did British primary schools... We also learnt a few other shows. There's a show called Introduction to Shakespeare. We did a pollution show called Go, Go, Go um, in in primary schools as well. And so her now husband, Matt Hill, came into my sphere shortly after. And then I know you through them because you're very good friends with both of them. Spoke at their wedding. I did. And that's the whole thing I think yeah I mean Louise yeah Louise me and Matt all went to university in Lancaster together and studied theatre um but tellingly uh Louise was doing uh French as well and she had her a year away I think same course as me 
And I really consider Louise and I absolute chalk and cheese in so many ways. But then at the same time, we've had these paths which are kind of weirdly similar, right. which yeah, is French fascinating. And yeah, we both did French and drama, I did. Yeah. Um, but not many people do that course, Dave. No, 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 sure. <laughs> sure, it's, it's an unusual combination, uh, which is served in both of your advantage, right? I mean, in the, yeah. In the, in the terms of doing that show, like the reason that you could do that show is you had both the skill sets needed which I guess not that many people in the UK at least I don't know I I mean I guess we all study French I'm a bit skewed because I was in (laughs) Wales a lot so I didn't study so much French at school but maybe a lot of people study French I don't know the only thing that amuses me about having studied French and theatre or French and drama is I do wonder in the grand scheme of things how many people have applied it so specifically as I have over the years yes I feel like lots of people with undergraduate degrees go on you know I've known people who studied geology to become police officers and people who study you know we don't always end up doing um, what we study but over the years I think I've I've clocked some serious time doing very specific French theatre yeah because we know each other through Matt and Louise um, and yeah we were both at their wedding but the other kind of context that we know each other from is Spark uh, which is a true storytelling event um, which you have kind of run the bar for for quite, a, quite you know for quite a few years when we've had a bar uh, in Exmouth Market and the reason that you ran that bar in Exmouth Market is because you knew the venue really well and you ran the bar yourself for your own night which is a French language cabaret <laughs> specific <laughs> um, yes um, so Soiree Pompette celebrated seven years in October um, and again it's that famous barbecue because I was working in Exmouth Market with Big Wheel Theatre Company on that French show right. I got to know that whole building yeah. um, because downstairs from their offices is this little community venue which is essentially a church hall um, got to know the venue manager Janet and when I was evolving from doing shows for kids and we, we'd been doing workshops for teachers, so kind of teacher training and all that kind of stuff, once I'd seen middle-aged guys putting on wigs and, you know, speaking confident but mediocre French, um, <laughs> I was like, damn, everyone kind of wants to do this. And I think it's a very British thing anyway, This the, the very dress-up culture, the very play-along culture. And I was like, God, if you put a glass of red wine in that person's hand, they'd be having a ball. (laughs) Um, So I just did a really simple, not even a pros and cons, but almost like a really basic spreadsheet of, right, if the venue costs this much and I buy booze for this much and I pay four acts this much money and I get an audience to pay this much entrance fee, does that, do I lose money on that? And once I'd established I wasn't going to lose money on it, I took a punt and did a first night, which went really well. And then it just carried on after that, fairly organically. And what kind of, the audiences for like a French language show in in London, I mean, other, other, is is it, I I imagine there there will be some French people who might want to come to that. But yeah. was it was it was it only French people or was it people who just like what what drew people who didn't sort of who weren't French uh, to that night, do you think? Well, it, it, I think it's going it's going back to that thing that I said that there's it's in it's integral to the British culture in a way that you know like the Freshers Week 
where you basically dress up for right. like seven days. People love dressing up and people love playing along. And there's a, there's a history of the absurd. There's a history of, you know, even things like Only Fools and Horses, like Del Boy's French. I always reference that as like, even if you don't speak any French, even if all you can say is mon petit poire or, right. you know, whatever it is, it's more about the mindset. It's not really a linguistic... Um, right. challenge it's more about when you walk into this room are you going to play along with everyone and it's that nod and that wink and yeah. you know pun intended it's tongue in cheek whatever that toe whatever le- level of that tongue right, is right, right. and I think that's why people like Pompette is that there's there's an atmosphere in the room of complicity between the audience and also a uh, real a really different feeling between the proprietor, so Pompette as the host, but right. the bar staff, the people at the door. I don't think in many places, apart from very involved kind of theatrical productions where they really do look at all of those details, in lots of bars there's a real feeling of anonymity, which is fine for yeah. an everyday Weatherspoons. But I think people are seeking those kinds of connections in for lots of reasons, like Spark as well. Yeah, People really respond to that kind of intimacy without that word meaning anything creepy yeah, like exactly. it's just a connection and you dress the room as well and you kind of make the whole experience and you are pompette we should I say like pompette. when you say when you say the host pompette that's you yes or a persona that you take on for the night totally and i mean i do definitely i reply to all of my emails with like we are so delighted things that i make it sound <laughs> like there's a team of people basically <laughs> i put out all the tables and chairs right you know any staff, any additional staff that I take on for the evening basically turn up half an hour before um, and might leave before I'm, right. you know, putting the last things away. Um, but I'm solely responsible for the whole the whole damn thing. And does that responsibility, like, weigh on you or do you enjoy it? Because, I mean, I've, I've run nights and I don't like that element of it, the way it kind of the buck stops with me and I'm the one who's... Kind of, like, I feel like it, it, get, it makes me quite anxious and I always like, you know, feel like there's a lot on my shoulders, which is, you know, not that's not necessarily even true. I think it's, a, it's about how you approach these things. I've just not got the right kind of temperament for it. I do think that there's a twisted thing that happens when you're, appro- when you're nearing your day that you kind of go, why the hell did right, I get myself right, right, into right. this? Like, I've got enough on my plate. Like, you <laughs> kind of right, start exactly. rejecting it. But fundamentally, you keep doing it because you enjoy it. Right. By the when end you of actually it. do the night, you're like, yeah. "Yes, I know why I do it." And the next day, yeah. you're like, "Yes, that's why." Precisely. You, you kind of do the next few bits of kind of organisation on a high, and right. then and then it kicks in again. Yeah. I do think though it's changed for me over the years because when I very first started Pompette, and one of the reasons that I did start it, I started it because I was still working for the theatre company, but. I was freelance, so, you know, occasionally I was between contracts and I just wanted to explore other ways of making a bit of money and being creative and having a bit of agency because I think when you're in certain roles in any organisation, whether that's an actor or an administrator, which I later went on to be, um, you might feel frustrated that you're not in charge of anything and I think that was... I think Pompette was born a little bit out of that. Right. So 
I started it in the October and in the November, literally a month later, I started working for a fashion house. Um, so I was between London and Paris quite a bit. And I was I was basically a studio assistant and a PA. And, you know, it was it was very upstairs, downstairs. And I was firmly downstairs. And so running a cabaret, you know, A, working for very creative people at the top of their game, very inspiring, but then very frustrating at the same time. Right. So running my own cabaret was a way of me being like, you know, I can be wholly in charge I can have a vision I can do something and be the top right of it too right um and also you're the folk you're on, on stage as well so yeah you're, you're not just like like if you're if you're downstairs in the in in, in, Paris, in Paris you're on stage in your cabaret night yeah I think I mean being pompette is more of a means to an end it's just like just right. stitching the night together I do enjoy I do enjoy being pompette um but i remember some i think maybe at the very beginning as well i remember one of my bar staff who worked with me for a number of years she was from a kind of cabaret background and i remember her saying to me like take your time like host because i think i was you'd kind of run on stage and right "Right, so our next act is right in french um and it's take it didn't, you know, some shows I just remember probably being more under that stress that we were talking about of being the organiser. And, you know, I do have to switch quite a bit from mm-hmm. I'm stage managing, I'm bar managing, yep. I'm hosting. Yep. It's quite a lot, and it's quite a lot to switch and come on stage. Yeah, I mean, I can relate be to chilled. that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't come on stage and be chilled, which is, I, get, <laughs> I get that. I guess that's my strategy for dealing with the, the having too many hats. Uh, I've I've got an anxious on stage presence, <laughs> uh, which kind of fits with uh, how I am before the show and after. So yeah, the second question I ask everybody before, because there's lots I actually want to unpick about, like what right. we've already started talking about. But the second question that I ask before I forget to ask it is, uh, what do you do now? So now, <laughs> fill in the gaps. I've just started a job. I am a school outreach and festival manager for a, a new social enterprise which seeks to uh, promote equality, essentially, in children's literature. So uh, one of the main things that we're doing, and that's where we are now, is we've opened a children's bookshop. So we are at 300 Stansteed Road, which is between Forest Hill and Catford. And we've opened a bookshop which aims to have a fully inclusive range of books and toys and you know, just everything you would expect from a children's bookshop, but reflects the local community, but London more broadly. Um, So whether that's through gender, through class, through sexuality, through race, we're hoping that any kid that comes into our shop finds themselves in a book, um, which is one objective, but also there's there's a lot of work, you know, a lot of work that we would support around empathy. So it's not just about seeing yourself in a book, right. but it's also about seeing other people in a book. So, right. you know, for, for example, with gender, it's totally right on that we've got so many cool books for, for girls now. One thing we need to be careful about, though, is making sure that boys are reading girls' books because right. there's been a big message about girls being boyish right 
and you know boys are still shying away from things with butterflies you know girls are expected to like dinosaur it up yeah but boys aren't expected to butterfly it up no that's so that's a conversation as well that's great i mean that's really great i mean that's yeah i'm excited like we so I sort of we I walked through the bookshop quite quickly today before coming up here uh, in the offices where we're recording. Um, but I'll take a, a slower walk out I think, <laughs> yeah. to really check out how what you're what you're doing because that's uh, it's a bookshop very much you know within the wheelhouse of many many of the things that I care about. Right. I mean, I used to work with uh, the under fives reading stories to children, yeah. and I could have done with a resource like this. Like it was always a a permanent source of kind of frustration. The uh, lack of diversity within the books that I was reading yeah. and when you're reading stories to children you tend to, like you, you can easily fall into the habit of going well I'll just read stories about animals because then right. everybody's represented because nobody's represented yeah. in a way uh, although still there's 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 the gender of those animals which is a thing to, to yeah. take into into consideration and yeah I mean I, I really resonate with what you're saying about like it's not just about seeing yourself represented, but it's also about being able to identify with other people who are not like you. And that's definitely like I, I tick all of the, the boxes of, of over-representation in culture. Um, and like it's definitely something that I have always thought like, you know, growing up I've always identified with, with women, heroines or whatever. Like, mm. you know, I was really into Buffy and I was, you know, into like imagining myself as Buffy rather than like being into it because I liked Xander or something like right. that, you know. Um, and it is a kind of frustration to me that, that there there is that kind of reluctance of, of different groups to like read uh, read as other groups, like imagine themselves through the, like as somebody else. So that's, it's really cool that you're like doing both sides of that. That's yeah, so brilliant. that's we're doing that through the bookshop and then following up. I suppose it's, you know we also work in schools. We right. do workshops. Um, eventually, phase three hundred and sixty-two is um, <laughs> is pathways into publishing. So that grassroots of telling kids publishing is a viable pathway. Wow. If you get more diverse kids into publishing, right. publishing becomes more diverse. So you're you're you're, li- you're you're covering every side of this. You're, it's do, really yeah. whole, holistic in the way that you're thinking about it, which is yeah, that's really good, like really exciting to hear. Um, and you know, I think we're in a quite exciting moment in those kind of terms. There's quite a lot of different kinds of people doing kind of. If, I don't want to say like diversity initiatives as if that's like uh, pigeonholing like or like that sometimes using those words will make people like turn off because they hear a buzzword but well we're calling it inclusivity these right, days, right right right, um, right. <laughs> no but it's a but new you, it's a new yeah, yeah. a i'm learning a new world because i'm not from a books right, perspective right, right. i'm from a more kind of education and events perspective but i've been to kind of publishing events where an inclusivity event essentially and there were loads of people from different kind of areas, you know, authors, illustrators, publishers, uh, marketing strategists, all talking about, right, how how do we keep this inclusive thing moving forward and it not turning into a trend? Right, because um, it, that's, that is the thing. It does need to, like, it, it's not, when I say we're in a moment... It needs it, to be solid. Exactly, and it is a danger of it being a trend. It always is with these kind of things. And uh, But also, it's not just, yeah, it's, it's about... 
it's about it becoming like second nature about it being just like changing the whole culture around it mm. really which is a big job um but it sounds like at least you know what you're doing here is is trying to kind of grapple with the the size of that job but also keeping it local and small as well like you're you're serving the communities around the bookshop you know, yeah i think it's important to be authentic in that respect um and yeah we've had loads of there's not really any this strip of shops that we're on um, we've, we're next to a William Hill betting this shop. This is true. Yeah, I, um, I, I was walking along and I was like, "That can't be! <laughs> that can't be the shop. That's a William Hill." And then, yeah, we are. Then, then <laughs> they, they were right next to. It. We're across the way from a brilliant Irish pub um, called the Blythe Hill Tavern, um, but other than that, it's a series of like currency exchange. There's a funeral yeah. director, a chicken shop. Um, there's a post office and I mean actually it's one of those parts of town I was in I was in the post office the other day sending stuff off for this shop and they were kind of weirdly shaped boxes and someone started asking me oh what are you sending and I said oh I'm from the new bookshop I ha- I'm not even joking the entire post office queue at some point entered into this conversation you're the new bookshop you should get involved with the festival that we have in the park in the summer oh you're the new bookshop I'll come in with my grandson like everyone was kind of chatting along so everyone's been eager for there to be something like this a bit more of a cultural hub let's say although the pub does do a really good job and they do poetry nights they do live Irish music nights but this is a destination for a lot of the young families that have moved into these side streets and, you know, even people coming in f- over from Lewisham and Catford, very excited that there's something like this here now. Yeah. So, yeah, it's nice. It's nice to have that reaction from, from local people. And so so you got to this job, I guess, through, you, as you say, you, you, you built up quite a lot of years' experience of, like, doing events, going into schools, doing educational uh, shows... Um, and doing the uh, admin side as well as the performance side, which kind of, I guess, is is one of the reasons that you're here. What what happened between, like, did you, did anything happen between then and, and now? Yeah, so I was working for that French fashion house uh, for a good four years when Pompette was nascent. <laughs> um, and then when I left fashion it was a bit of a break glass in emergency I'd basically moved houses from one house to another and the move that I made was not a happy one Um, and I stayed in that job for about three or four months which I've never done I'm a bit of a normally more stubborn than that but I was like no not for me not my value system can't no this is all wrong and I was flying through Guardian Jobs one lunchtime slash never had lunch. So it was obviously just a wild five minutes where I was like really desperate. <laughs> um, and I saw this job in a secondary school for girls in East Dulwich slash Peckham. And I was like, and it was an events coordinator job. And I was like, oh my goodness, could that sound any more perfect? Um, r- basically running extracurricular events in a girls school. Right. I was like, that sounds brilliant. Went for the interview. Well, no, put in a shoddy application because I remember the deadline was coming up. Again, I didn't have any spare time with this job. It was in Sam. So I was like, right, I am going to fire off this shoddy application form, but they can see, you know, if they can see through the fog, maybe they'll think I'm an an appropriate candidate. Got an interview. I was like, excuse me, got an interview. (laughs) 
And I remember I'm never going to get out for an interview. I was like, this job has been non-stop. I will never be let off for an interview. But I did that thing where you just like put your head in the sand and you're like, I'll just see on the day whether I can randomly disappear for an hour or so. Right. Again, the planets aligned. So my direct manager went to Italy for the day as they sometimes do people go for meetings so she went to Italy for the day on that day in that same week they'd finally recruited an assistant for me so there was a there was a bit of slack in my schedule I'd been doing a three-person job which is another story but finally had an assistant and I was like oh my god there's a window here the boss isn't there I've got an assistant who can keep things ticking over for the morning I'm going to go to this interview. <laughs> so I go to this interview, chat, 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 chat. I'm in the taxi back and I get a call saying, we'd like to offer you the job. And I was like, ha, ta, 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 ta. <laughs> I was like, give me the weekend. Because bear in mind, I mean, this hasn't always been, this is not, I'm not, it's going to sound naive to be like, money isn't an issue for me. Like, Money isn't my biggest motivator, but we are talking about swings of quite significant salaries at this right, point. Right. So I'd this job that I didn't enjoy, because I knew I wasn't going to enjoy it, I'd negotiated quite a silly salary increase. And when they said yes, which was unexpected, I, it made me think, more it made me kind of yeah. think about the job I think more. it's understandable to want to stay at a job potentially because there's a good salary even if you're not enjoying it I think that's very right. relatable so that was kind dilemma. of like oh no so now I'm on this money but I hate it and then in my but by this time I was like even if I take a massive because this was a pay slash beyond the original job I was in in the first place I was like but realistically the hours that I'm doing I could still do this job and have a part-time job in the pub it would be the same hours and probably work out as being the same money I mean I was I was these were the kinds of sums I was doing in my head because I was like I was so unhappy but I gave myself the weekend anyway bizarrely it was the Christmas party that evening so I'm going to this like fashion party at Soho house kind of basically feeling like an imposter because I was like I'm blatantly going to leave you I'm blatantly going to take this idyllic job and this is all nonsense to me um and yeah I accepted the job and I worked in that school for about two and a half years so I was an events coordinator which meant taking it meant anything from taking kids to like mass competitions at city hall loads of theatre trips um I used to organize a literary festival right Spark did some stuff for the literary yeah. festival yeah um and it was a really good it was a really good run um it was a time there was a bit of a timing thing as well where I felt a little bit understretched maybe in that job but at the same time my dad got ill um literally six months after I'd started there and suddenly this job also became a really convenient way for me to be at home more um because my parents only live in Kent so it's only an hour away but when I was between London and Paris a week you know that was right I'd see them every three months or something like that was fairly cool about not going home that often right but suddenly you're like oh someone's ill I'm gonna at least be there every other weekend and that 
that my complete shift in lifestyle meant that I was totally able to 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 do that um and my dad died last year and that whole time um was really well spent I think I don't have any regrets about you know I think how some people are yeah, like nice. oh I wish I like great timing it was really uh, great timing like um and basically job cuts came in to our school last year right. I'd already dodged a redundancy the year before right. that but I didn't dodge it this time. No, well, public sector is... You can imagine, really... an events coordinator in a school, right. people, A, haven't heard of that job. Right, I'm surprised it lasted that long. Right, exactly. I mean, my um... job went a while back, yeah. <laughs> So I'd, I'd <laughs> held on, um, but the, the, kind of the rodeo ball finally bucked me off. Right. And I'd been working with this children's bookshop as a... Because they'd been doing... I'd hired them for workshops for the Literary Festival... When they found out that I was potentially looking for work, they were like, that coincides really nicely with what we're doing. <laughs> um, and so I was like, okay, I'll come and work for you. I deferred deferred my start date, but um, it all kind of worked out quite nicely. Right. Um, um, yeah. I mean, so the odd, the odd thing out, I guess, is the fashion thing. In the, <laughs> like, you know, when you, when you, when you think about, about it, like... You, Dra- drama and French, and then you did drama and fr- then you did drama and French in schools, and then the schools kind of came into it and the educational element, and then like, but, but then in the middle of that, you go off and join a fashion company. Like what? Dave, it was a happen? French fashion house. It was drama and French. I'm, I'm, sure, it was, I'm sure it was dramatic. I'm, I'm sure it was French, and so I can see how you had the French element. But like, 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 was that? Do you think that there's kind of like? Was that a, a different side of you that you kind of were, were exercising, or was it? A... No, it was it was totally bonkers. I mean, the <laughs> the um, the image I've always given of my career slash series of jobs <laughs> has always been like one of those farcical sketches where people just fall through doors. Right. Like it's always felt that it's been a happening. Right. Right. And fashion was very much like that. So. When I was freelance working for theatre, starting a French cabaret, the Christmas period was coming up and I didn't have work until probably maybe speculatively February. So I went to a a bilingual language recruitment um, kind of consultant and I was like, okay, I need, I would like a temporary job, please, ding. And they came back to me with this job and they were like, so, um," and she speaks, she's like, you know, job recruitment person, really adorable. So, darling, I've there's this job. Uh, it's for a fashion luxury company, and uh, if you can get to the interview this afternoon, that'd be great. So I was like, okay, this is this sounds like a full time role though. But I went along anyway. Again, it was there was something kind of weird about the day. It was snowing. One of those snow days where there was no hardly any public transport. I right. trudged in wearing kind of ridiculous snow boots but being like oh my god I'm going to a fashion so I remember changing in the reception area being like please don't tell anyone that you saw these boots (laughs) but the reception the lady got reception totally got it anyway met my boss which I think again gave me loads of false impressions because of this snow day she was in this big jumper and she was wearing big weird boots and I was like oh maybe it's not as refined as I thought it was right anyway it was pretty refined right um (laughs) but 
I hit it off with this woman in this interview. When I started really thinking about it, there was loads of stuff that was super exciting about it. It was between London and Paris, so travel between those two cities. It was, you know, I have an appreciation for aesthetic creation, a bit of excellence as well, which is kind of what this place. I mean, it was it was it was almost like a startup. So there was a bit of there's a bit of chaos anyway in in fashion, but ultimately it was about doing these um, like brilliant things with brilliant people right um and because we were a team that traveled together and because you do very long hours together it very quickly felt like a bit like family right and i've always been attracted to people right and just the team that we had something forged itself while i was there and i was you know i have incredibly fond memories um of working there it's all now gone. There's nothing to be particularly nostalgic about. Um, lots of those people have moved on. The offices in London have closed. But we were part of something quite special at that time. Right. So, um, well, fashion's creative anyway. Like it's, I'm, I, you know, I don't. I'm not. I'm not one of these people who kind of dismisses the fashion world. No, no, completely. no, not I at mean... all. But I think there is a lot of misconception. I think some, I used to say that I worked for a design studio because when you say fashion. It's like a Mexican standoff, that expression where it's like everyone's just looking at everyone going, are you judging me or am I judging you for judging me? Like, it's like fashion is this kind of click word that people are impressed, but maybe intimidated by. And bear in mind, I am not a particularly, I'm not an elite fashion-y person. I mean, I don't know... Well, I mean, you're making you're making well, no, a face. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what you're going to say at the end of your sentence, so I don't know what my face should be. <laughs> what face I should be making? No, but I'm not. Um, I think I've always been a. I think people think of me as kind of. Um, I'm not a designer. I was an administrator for that team. Right. I'm not a haughty, judgy. You're definitely not haughty, <laughs> haughty and judgy. Definitely. And not. the designers I worked with weren't particularly either. I mean, I, right. only in jest. I mean, to be honest, like, yeah. I, I mean, I would think of you as quite down to earth in lots of ways. Okay, if I'm you glad like. you said that. Like, you know, like. You know, when you're doing like when we've we've worked together at Spark, you know, you come in on your bike, you know, and you, you, <laughs> yeah. you, you're getting the delivery in, and you're like, you know, you're not, you know, there's there's yeah. no airs and graces going on. And I think I was, that's why I was quite successful, quite happy where I was in fashion because I wasn't competing with any of those ideas. I wasn't an administrator who dreamed of being a designer right. or a producer right. of, you know. I was just happy doing what I was doing. I think people quite liked that I was the oddball that also had a cabaret um, and insisted on cycling into work um, (laughs) and arriving in a cycle helmet. I think people respected that side of my individuality as part of the team. Right. And so all of these jobs involve French and you studied French. Yeah. I mean, maybe the the job you're doing now doesn't involve that much French, but yeah. maybe a little bit of French anyway, because there's different languages, I'm sure, yeah. that you're looking at in terms of your book collection. Yeah. And French is certainly a very diverse language in terms of the countries that speak French. Why, why French? So my mother is French. I grew up I figured that. bilingual, <laughs> which is why I've got this this name um which hasn't always been the most practical name being in an anglophone country right but 
you know, I've always, I've never, I know people abbreviate my name, but I never introduce myself as Verge. I always say, no. oh, I'm Virginie. Um, and it's, uh, it's just a language that I've always spoken and I enjoy speaking. And I think I grew up naturally translating for my dad. Um, but I think I also have, I have a, a linguist's mind. I think I enjoy language and I like imparting things and sharing ideas with people. So it was kind of natural for me to want to continue working bilingually in a lot of settings. Right. I mean, you're bilingual and you are, I guess, like dual, dual nationality in some ways or dual, oh, dual yeah. heritage. At least. Yes, I've got my French ID card. Right. Just in case, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, I, and I realized as well, like when you when you when you said your own name, I probably slightly mispronounced your name at the beginning of this episode because I'm not very good. Like I have a weird thing with French. I'm never, I never, I always end up giving it more airs and graces than it, <laughs> than it necessarily has itself. Being French and British and Irish, and, well, yeah. Well, they they go. That's a that's a, an interesting tr- triple. Yeah. Uh, like that's that's three of the rugby countries. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting combination of, of, of heritages because they're, they're so close together, right? Like, one of the things everybody in this country always thinks is, like, France is over there, and it's so close. Like, like it's, it's, it's ridiculous. You can swim to France. It's, it's so close. Go and, on, then. And, well, I, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. But you can see France, at least. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I wouldn't swim it. But, like, people do. Um, not me. Um, and there's all of this rivalry between France and, and Britain and kind of like we've had wars and like invaded each other and all of these things. But at the same time, like I always think we're really close in culture, like really culturally very similar, even though there's obvious massive differences. But like a lot of the things that British people, when they say nasty things about French people in their imagination, they're all things that I, I think are equally appropriate to say about British people, like arrogant or like, you know, you know, all of these kind of things. You know, OK, the only, the only you know, French people are generally considered as less repressed than English people. My favourite, being the observer of both right. frustrations, is my favourite is the universal accusation that the other language wait for you to try and pronounce a word before going oh you mean <laughs> so the English will be like yeah and I said and I said Dordogne and they just looked at me and then they were like oh Dordogne <laughs> and then the French will do the same thing they'll be like I said water closet and then they said Oh, water closet. <laughs> so that everyone right. has that universal experience of feeling foolish or misunderstood by right. the other one. And that's just not unique on any level. Right. I mean, and, I, and, and throw an island into the mix as well. Like, again, like, <laughs> like all of these countries are very similar, but they hate each other as well. Like they have like a lot of problems with the each French other. French and the Irish have always been, I think, they, 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 that's true. Each other. That, that's the allies. part of your triangle. They like each other. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that is that is absolutely true. I mean, and I, I've got kind of connections with with Ireland. Like uh, my stepdad is from Northern Ireland, and I kind of know people in Southern Ireland as well. Uh, like obviously, they're not the same country. Uh, like please, <laughs> please don't write in. Uh, understand uh, only too well uh, the problems going on in that in that sentence I made um, but, like, but don't you think ju- I'm just reflecting on this now like don't you think that also those those characters so if they're all characters right France and England that history which is all inherited 
is that kind of old colonial competitiveness. Ireland's always been the kind of kind of out of it cool guy um, who you know has no beef with France, has old beef with England. Right. Well, well, Ireland was colonized. Right. Exactly. So, so of course they've got like those dynamics with people who didn't colonize them. Yeah. However, like that's one of the similarities I think between France and 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 Britain is that they're both like colonial powers that have got deeply problematic relationships with race. Yeah. Like, like that's one of the like I you know I I think it's it's kind of fascinating to me how much these two very similar kind of countries have this kind of competition with each other yeah. when, you know, like the rest of the world, they pretty much, we, you know, France and, 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 and Britain from the outside to the people they were colonised will not have been particularly different. But we, but we, you know, we both think we did it better than the other one. Uh, <laughs> but it's funny how we all, cap, like, that gets passed on somehow. Yeah, yeah, how yeah. is that? Like... Is well, it just from watching LOLO or is it in school or where does it all seep in? I don't know. Because we seem to know this stuff even though we didn't grow up necessarily with that direct history. Um, I don't know. Well, you know, it's interesting because there's a lot of like thinking around kind of inter- intergenerational trauma of like people who've yeah. been oppressed. Um, but like I've been reading recently kind of people writing about like the intergenerational trauma of the oppressors and how like that's also passed down and that's also like a a position that we're kind of it's almost like to be to be comfortable with being the countries we are we have to think we're superior to others like and we've kind of like passed that down through generations I think yeah I suppose if you want to call I think you saying tra- like saying yeah. calling it a trauma feels wrong, but it's a trauma to our humanity. Yes, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely am not meaning to elide the uh, <laughs> the feelings of the oppressed groups and the and the uh, uh, oppressors. And France, in it, is is in a I don't know. It like it has more power, really. I think globally than than the UK now. I mean, as with someone who has kind of a foot in both sides. I mean, I guess, like, the Brexit kind of thing that we're in at the moment means that, like, one half of you is on one side of that and the other side is probably probably on the same side, but, like, <laughs> the frustrated side of the... Yeah, of I don't know about the, the global power. I think both England and France, you know, this kind of the old European countries, they, you know, they have a lot of cultural capital. Right, um, cultural capital's right, yeah. But I want, you know, on the global scale, like, I don't know, like, Macron's doing this new initiative to try and, you know, pump up the, right, the French right. language kind of vibes. Because they've lost a lot of ground. It's right. no longer the diplomatic language that it used to be. Right. And I've, I've, you know, not joked, but I've remarked, I've got friends who are bilingual in Gujarati, for example. And I know, like, without having to have been in Bradford with them in the 1980s that they didn't have the same reaction to their bilingualism that I did right, from indeed. teachers who were like oh right so cultured yeah exactly <laughs> like that the idea that Absolutely. I'm bilingual Absolutely. in French gives me this kind of like oh you know yeah although if you, how adorable although if you or if you weren't white and you have and you spoke french like a lot of potentially communities, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah a lot of african communities because of colonization i've you know speak french just as some of them speak english because of colonization yeah um 
like you know or Portuguese yeah. or Spanish you know like I guess if someone is, is black and they're speaking French they're more likely to be read as like You're, you should just learn the language even though right, it's right. a European language because people wouldn't even hear it as French I think sometimes if it's if it's uh, coming out of a mouth that they don't expect to speak French right which is absurd anyway because France is a massively well pockets of France just like pockets of the UK are massively diverse right? yeah and there's loads of French speaking people of color yeah. um, but like yeah you're right like structural position wise I guess growing up it was it was was it cool for like it was cool with teachers was it cool with the with the other students um, I wasn't particularly susceptible to other people's opinions <laughs> when I was younger like I know I like I'm it. not like joking it. but my sister for example she went through a phase of don't speak to me in French in the playground right like, my mum picking us up she, my sister went through a, like a shame phase which I think is a common experience for a lot of bilingual kids I think this is what I mean I think I have a I have a mind of a, a linguist and I don't mind standing out a little bit whereas some kids suddenly realize that it makes them different and they're not happy with it um, so that's how you end up with kids that understand languages but don't ever reply or don't right. speak languages you know there's actually quite a lot of different types of bilingual kids yeah I mean a lot of bilingual kids they will speak back in like English if they're English yeah. or whatever to the to you know rather than in the language that they're yeah. being addressed in like you know very much uh, the, the, the reference point for this even though it's not in any way a UK reference point but it's in my head now is like on Jane the Virgin uh, okay. like the, the, the grandmother always speaks in in yeah in Venezuela so they will be Spanish uh, and uh, the the rest of the family speak in, right. in, in, uh, in American English too, too uh, yeah and I guess that's quite a common thing uh, in bilingual households but I mean it doesn't sound like that was that's not the, been the way that you've been bilingual no I think it was it kind of helped that my French grandparents lived in England for a few years when I was when I was younger. So we had additional time with French speakers. So it wasn't just my mum speaking French to us. It was also my grandparents. And then I would spend long uh, holidays with my aunt and I would see my cousins and then because I wanted I think you know and I think that's why I studied French at university is because I wanted to catch up on French culture that I felt I hadn't had because I didn't go through a schooling system so I was acutely aware that I didn't know culture is so broad like to catch all the nuances mm. is quasi impossible right. like for example if you haven't watched Alan Partridge as a British person, <laughs> you feel like an outcast because it feels like people talk about it and you're like, oh, I don't, I don't know what that was. Right. And the same with French. I'm like, those gaps that I, do, I have from not having been through a schooling system used to really bug me. Well, they didn't really bug me, but they made me feel inferior. Like Because I think that thing of being three nationalities... When I was in Ireland, I was the English cousin. When I was in France, I was the English cousin. And then when I'm here, I'm the... I don't think, I wouldn't say people saw me as foreign, but I always felt awkward. Like, I always yeah, wanted yeah. to be more to my cousins yeah. and fit in more. Um, but, you know, if you make a mistake in French, it was like, oh, God. Right. 
Um, no, I, 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 I'm I mean, quite pride. I think it's my pride that's a problem. I mean, I, unfortunately, I only have one language, but I can still I can still relate. Having yeah. moved quite frequently between England and Wales, I, I, I I've never like when I'm in England, I felt Welsh, and when I was in in, in Wales, I felt English. So, uh, like, it, yeah, I, I can relate even on that, and that's tiny geographical difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you've embraced you've embraced your Frenchness like in lots of ways, right? You've made it kind of like a big feature in your life I have but I don't think I well I I don't think I'm trying to pretend to be anything that I'm not no, if that makes sense so I keep the French cabaret quite you know it's not a French club for French people thank right. you very much it's it's actually quite, from quite a British perspective, right. I think. People will man- mangle their French pronunciation. Yeah, and, <laughs> you know, I've, I don't refer to myself as half French. I know people that are, you know, have multiple nationalities and they might say that I'm half X, Y, or Z. I've always said that I'm English or British and my mother is French and my father is Irish because I'm acutely aware that my childhood my adolescence reformative years were here and i do feel strongly british in that way and that and that goes for kind of the some of the worldview stuff i mean how do you feel about brexit i mean it's it's, you know you don't have to answer i don't know that i i feel i I don't know. I don't know that I can articulate. I don't. I d- uh, okay. It's going to sound like I'm like really angry or emotional about it. No, no. I'm actually kind of ambivalent. I'm right. kind of. It's like watching. And then again, this image isn't going to be quite right because again, it makes it sound like I'm a, a, a feeling a particular way about it. It's like watching a, a, a house burn, where you're just like still watching it. I'm not doing anything about... Like, there's nothing I can do. I'm just right, watching. Right. I'm mesmerised. Right. But I don't know what will happen. No, nor do I. Is the roof going to fall off or are they <laughs> going to put it out in time? Or Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, I don't... I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean... It's kind of weird. I, I, it is weird. <laughs> it is weird. And it's, and it's a thing, like, whereby... I don't know. I, I, I voted uh, to... Uh, remain obviously or not obviously but like you know you will assume that too um but like that was an ambivalent it would have been an ambivalent vote because I don't know if I'm like like if I love Europe either like I think that Europe is great as a concept but not necessarily in its practical application like in terms of like I want us all to get together and to 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 like share like I love free movement of people that's one of the reasons I voted to remain but then we haven't got free movement of people who are not European right. within within Europe but then by the time the actual vote came it was about very different things than uh, are we staying in or out of Europe there was there was all of this other stuff that was attached to it around race and xenophobia and and all of those things so I you know I I, I couldn't I couldn't remain ambivalent I, I had to like you know definitely I definitely didn't want those people to feel empowered and yet they were they did they won so it was weird <laughs> I think for me it was just the weirdness of you know, I'm not an expert on European laws and I don't know right. the finite details. Right. All I know is that lots of educated people I know who work in Brussels or for the government sure. in Whitehall 
were of the opinion that we should stay in Europe. Yeah, I, yeah. That was my overarching sentiment. <laughs> um, and I was prepared to hear arguments for it being better to leave, let's say. Yeah. Didn't hear any. No arguments. Um, made, yeah. Didn't see anyone that I thought I might respect the opinion of giving a good example why and this is why I mean my favorite thing was at the time I was coaching or helping I wasn't coaching them I was driving them around to competitions but the debate team at school and they came and saw me the the morning of the the results and they were like miss what did you think about the referendum results because we'd also done a school campaign we'd done a mini campaign in school about Brexit which was very difficult to be impartial about it was like really weird to present facts to kids when you're like well, allegedly, we're going to spend £350,000 a week on the NHS. Allegedly. Yeah. Um, it was really weird big deciphering lie, that down for lie. kids. Um, anyway, so they came to me and they're like, Miss, what did you think of the results? And I was like, the only thing I'll say, girls, because I don't like sharing... I don't like sharing politi- like yeah, fair, fair. overtly political views with, with kids probably subconsciously it's just flying out of every orifice but I don't like saying this is who I voted for or whatever so it's like the only thing I'll say girls is that if you'd gone into one of your competitions with the standard of arguments that we'd heard before voting I wouldn't have been happy with you going into that competition like we'd been training them for weeks on how to build an argument how to put forward strong you know, supporting statements, figures, statistics, how you summarise, how you, you know, all those techniques. And I was like, I'm really sorry, girls, but it looks like as a nation, we haven't been able to show you a better example. I didn't say that, but I that's kind of where I left it. Yeah. And they were like, OK, thanks, miss. Bye. Right, right, right. <laughs> like, that's how I felt. I was like, that was feeble. Well, yeah. How are you supposed to tell young people, like, you know, this is what you should strive for when the example being set by the allegedly highest echelons are falling short. Yeah, well, my partner, Jen, works in a a school and and she often sort of says just, like, when she catches Prime Minister's questions, she's, like, appalled. Like, she's like, I would not let my classes behave the way the Houses of Parliament behave to each other. And I think that's, that's, yeah, like, there's often that sense of, like, you know, people who are like working to really high standards with their with their yeah. students, and how then you, to you look them? at like how the the world is actually run, and you're like, oh, <laughs> like it's it, if only the, the the greatness of kids could 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 be allowed into like you know at their best, kids are much more kind of intelligent, compassionate, empathetic than I often see politicians being. Yeah, so, but like I guess when when that split happens, if it happens, like I guess that's a split that is within your identity, even though you kind of define yourself as as English or British. Like you're, you've still got two passports, which is good for you. Uh, you are still be able have to third if have, I wanted to. Yeah, and you'll you'll still be able to have free movement and all of these. things. Yeah, it doesn't. It um, I suppose it doesn't feel like it affects me perhaps in the same way as it might someone who can't apply for another passport um although i know a lot of people who've rummaged around for an irish grandparent recently right um (laughs) but i think it's it's difficult for any of us who are our age pre-european union formation of the european union to really imagine what that landscape looks like we're not looking back at anything else we've grown up in it we take most of it for granted. 
So it will be interesting to see exactly how it plays out. And it will be a lifespan. Those of us who are kind of like, I caramba about the whole thing. <laughs> if it is going ahead, I suppose at some point, well, it's that, it's that conundrum as well. Is like, well, now that we're doing it, we've got to hope for the best, right? Are you a total kamikaze and you want the whole thing to fail abysmally to prove everyone right but that's cutting your nose off to spite your face right right or do you kind of think it will get better but in what time frame like if it's going to take 20 years for it to get better man it's bad i mean the only thing that could happen is that house prices go down that's literally the only thing that i can think of um, well, that would make a massive change for this country. I mean, houses are the biggest issue in lots of ways. Not the biggest. It's, it's always a mistake to say the biggest issue. But, like, people being able to afford to live in their, in, and, and rent and own houses in, this, in the UK is a big issue. But I don't know if Brexit's going to solve it, to be honest. Like, I don't know. That's, what, that's how I always felt. Like, the, the intelligent people, if you like, that I did hear making good arguments, they were very hard to find, were kind of left-wing kind of people who, whose argument mm. was, you know, we can make a, a much more left-wing country if we separate from, uh, from the undemocratic European Union. But I was always like, yeah, but we've got a Tory government. So, like, well, you're separating a much worse situation than the, than the EU. And that's, that's kind of my fear. Like, when we go it alone, who's going to be leading us when we, when we go it alone? Is, is, is what we, I guess we have to focus on now if we are going to leave. I mean, the idea that we would be lo- leaving Europe to make a left-wing kind of... It is a very naive in, attitude. Like, I do I, agree bananas especially when you've got people like the people that we had leading the campaign yep. not convincing me of left i know left idealism no i know i mean i'm I, I, you know i'm not very convinced by left idealism either you know which is funny because you know I, that's how a lot of people would think of me as a left idealist but they left me cold on the, on the brexit issue so yeah, I mean, this has been a brilliant conversation, and uh, like, it's been a real pleasure to get better acquainted with you. I feel like I, I, I know you much better. <laughs> um, the the last uh, question that I ask everybody is, do you have anything to plug? Our new bookshop. Um, if you're in the southeast area, um, we are um, SE twenty three one DE Moon Lane Books. Easy to, it's called. easy to find. It is easy to find. Just stick it into your Google Maps. Where's the nearest William Hill? We're just next door. <laughs> um, and also, I suppose, the cabaret, Soiree Pompette. The next one's on the 19th of April, 2018. Um, those are my two my two pet loves at the moment. Um, so those are the things that um, I would plug. And can people find them online? Both of those things should be online. Um, if you don't find those then I'm in serious trouble because I'm responsible for both of those being out there. Right, so I'll link to them both in the show notes. Uh, And the last thing I ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. Bye, audience. Bye, everyone. If you're interested in hearing about masculinity and what patriarchy does to men and to all people if you go to the unbound website and there'll be a link to this in the show notes you can find mansplaining masculinity over there and pre-order a copy of that book unbound is a kind of cross between a publishing company and a crowdfunding 
company, which means that the way that the books get published is that people who want to read the books pre-order those books. They can pre-order them as a digital copy or as a hardback, or they can pledge more money to get different kinds of things along with the book that they're pre-ordering. You can find all of that stuff over on mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. If you're interested in reading about me and my dad and our relationship and dementia and memory and time and history and politics and love and friendship check out my essay series down to a sunless sea memories of my dad as well as making getting better acquainted i also co-produce and i guess star in the magical realist audio drama podcast the family tree in order to keep making it and to make season two as good as we want it to be we need your help so if you can afford to then please do consider signing up to our patreon appeal you can follow getting better acquainted on twitter at gba podcast you can like getting better acquainted on facebook and you can find getting better acquainted on itunes soundcloud those kind of places and the last thing that i ask my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience so goodbye everybody and remember there are lots of ways to get better acquainted